The second epistle of Peter was written by Simon Peter. Second Peter 1 1, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ. Peter introduces his epistle by using two of his given names. The use of two names by an individual in the Greco-Roman culture was widespread. Saul Paul, Silvanus Silas, John Mark. Simon, his Jewish name, is a diminutive of Samuel and means God has heard. Peter, his Grecian name, means stone. Cephas is the Aramaic version of Peter. There's some debate about whether Peter is the author due to stylistic and grammatical differences between the two epistles bearing his name. However, such criticism is easily explained away by two arguments. First, Peter's purpose in writing both epistles was different. Second, Peter likely used different amanuenses to record both epistles. Further, there are a substantial number of internal and external evidences that support his authorship. There are at least four internal pieces of evidence. First, the epistle's author claims to be Simon Peter. His use of the Jewish form of Simon, Simeon, demonstrates the authenticity of his identity. Second, the author states that he is going to die soon, 2 Peter 1.14. Someone pretending to be Peter would not make a claim that could not be substantiated. That Peter was martyred by Nero in A.D. 68 places this epistle's writing sometime between A.D. 65 and 68. Third, the author claims to be an eyewitness of Christ's transfiguration, 2 Peter 1, 16-18. And fourth, the author claims that this is his second epistle to this group of believers, 2 Peter 3, 1. There are also 13 similarities between 2 Peter and Jude. For example, 2 Peter 1, 5 and Jude 3, 2 Peter 2, 1 and Jude 4, 2 Peter 2, 4 and Jude 6, and so on. Now, obviously, one writer is quoting the other. The question then is, who quoted who? Examining both epistles, it's obvious that Jude quoted 2 Peter. In 2 Peter, Peter warns his readers that false teachers are coming. Jude writes that false teachers have arrived. That Jude quoted Peter's second epistle demonstrates that this epistle was not a second century forgery. As to external evidences, the apostolic fathers viewed 2 Peter as scripture and thus accepted the epistle's claim of Petrine authorship. The epistle is alluded to in 1 Clement, A.D. 70, 2 Clement, A.D. 95, the epistle of Barnabas, A.D. 70-132, and Shepherd of Hermas, A.D. 140, and Martyrdom of Polycarp, circa A.D. 160. In his Dialogue to Trypho, A.D. 155, Justin Martyr alludes to 2 Peter. Clement of Alexandria, A.D. 150-215, produced a commentary on Peter's second epistle, which cast doubts again on the idea that the epistle is a forgery. Additionally, the early church recognized 2 Peter's legitimacy, while also rejecting other supposed Petrine documents. Now, Peter here refers to himself as a bondservant and apostle. The term bondservant denotes an individual who serves the will of another. 
By referring to himself as a bondservant, Peter was announcing that he served under the lordship of Jesus Christ. As an apostle, Peter was sent out as a sanctioned representative or messenger of Jesus Christ. By denoting his status as a bondservant and an apostle, Peter underscored his authority to write this epistle. Thus, he does not write opinions, but rather God-breathed revelation. Now, as mentioned, Peter is writing again to the same group of believers that he wrote to in his first epistle, those scattered throughout five of Asia Minor's Roman provinces, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. These Jewish believers had been scattered as a result of the persecution against Christianity. And whereas Peter wrote his first epistle to encourage scattered and suffering saints, he writes his second epistle to warn these same saints concerning antinomian Gnosticism and apostasy. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 18 to 21, For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, promising them freedom, while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. 2 Peter 3.17 You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. Now, antinomianism comes from two terms, anta, against or without, and nomos, law, meaning lawlessness. And the goal of antinomianism is to undermine and repeal God's law. Apostasy is the forsaking God and defecting from the faith, that is, the body of doctrine called orthodoxy. See, within persecution intensifying, many believers were being deceived by false teachings about God's law and in danger of becoming apostate. And so, Peter begins his letter reminding his readers of the divine provisions given to them for a life of godliness. This opening serves as a natural progression from the end of his last letter, where Peter reminded us that God's mighty hand will perfect us, confirm us, strengthen us, and establish us. And as such, God accomplishes these actions by granting us faith, grace, and peace, everything pertaining to life and godliness, and precious, magnificent promises. Now, the first divine provision believers have been given is faith. 2 Peter chapter 1, again, the second part of verse 1. To those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Again, the first divine provision believers have been given is faith. Peter describes his readers, as those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours. Now, the verb received, lagkano, means to obtain by the casting of lots. Now, the casting of lots was the God-given means to determine God's will, Proverbs 16.33. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Throughout the Old Testament, God's people determined God's will by casting lots. Joshua 14, 1 and 2. These are the territories which the sons of Israel inherited in the land of Canaan. By the lot of their inheritance, as the Lord commanded through Moses, for the nine tribes and the half tribe. First Chronicles 25, verse 8. They cast lots for their duties, all alike, 
the small as well as the great, the teacher as well as the pupil. The church continued casting lots to determine God's will in Acts one twenty six, And they drew lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the eleven apostles. Now the term faith is anarthrous, that is, it lacks the definite article, and it refers to saving faith. That believers receive faith by the will of God indicates that faith does not originate within us. Instead, it is the gift of God, Ephesians 2.8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God. Furthermore, Peter states that this saving faith given to us is of the same kind as Peter's. Of the same kind is a timas sometimes translated as precious, means equal in honor and privilege. This term was used of foreigners who were afforded citizenship. Once naturalized, they were on equal standing with all other citizens of the same country. Thus, all believers, we are equally citizens of the heavenly kingdom. 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks whether slave or free. We were all made to drink of one spirit. Ephesians 2.19 So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Galatians 3.28 There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all alone in Christ Jesus. Colossians 3.11 there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free man, but Christ is all and in all. See, Peter's point was that his apostleship did not make him any more of a heavenly citizen than any other believer. All believers, regardless of class or ethnicity, are equal in honor and privilege. This heavenly citizenship was obtained not by human works of righteousness, but by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Righteousness refers to God's justice in relation to humanity. God's justice is meted out fairly and equally. Peter learned this firsthand when God revealed to him that the Gentiles also would receive the gospel. He stated in Acts 10.34, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. That is, God does not play favorites. Now the Greek construction of our God and Savior Jesus Christ is significant. It conforms to what is called the Granville Sharp Rule, which states that when two or more nouns are joined by and, the conjunction and, the first having the definite article and the others not having it, they all refer to the same subject. In this case, God in the Greek is joined by the definite article, whereas Savior has no definite article. Now, acknowledging this rule is crucial because it equates Savior with God and makes both of them describe Jesus Christ. Interestingly, Savior is one of God's names in the Old Testament. Psalm 106.21, they forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt. Isaiah 43.3, I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Hence, Jesus is God and bears God's name, Savior. That Christ is God is significant 
The Hebrew term Elohim, translated as God, means the mighty one, the great one, or the exalted one. It depicts God as the one who is sovereign over all. Isaiah 54, 5, who is called the God of all the earth. Jeremiah thirty-two twenty-seven. behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too difficult for me? Now, he's given us a divine provision of faith. The second divine provision believers have been given is grace and peace. First Peter 1, excuse me, 2 Peter 1, 2. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Again, the second divine provision we have been given is grace and peace. Peter presents grace and peace as part of his salutation. Grace and peace was a typical Christian greeting that combined both Gentile and Jewish greetings. For believers, grace is not only the loving favor which God bestows on us as sinners, but it is his enabling strength for our daily lives. 1 Peter 2.20 If when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure, this finds favor or grace with God. 1 Corinthians 15.10 But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me did not prove vain. But I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. See, grace or favor is the strength to endure the pain of suffering. And whereas grace is the means by which we come to know God, peace is the result of experiencing God's grace. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The Hebraic view of peace includes all the blessings associated with salvation during the Messianic age. And this peace was initiated when Christ shed his blood on the cross. Colossians 1.20 Through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things in earth or things in heaven. This grace and peace are going to be multiplied to believers. That verb multiplied, plethinu, means to become larger or greater in amount. And this is a common Hebraic idiom found in Jewish prayers. 2 Peter 1, 2, grace and peace be multiplied to you. Jude 2, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Now, scattered and suffering believers need an abundance of God's grace or favor to endure hostility. Additionally, we need an abundance of peace not to prevent the hostility, but to have inner calm amid the hostility. Now, how do we receive this provision of abundant grace and peace? First, abundant grace and peace come from growing in the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. That word knowledge there, epinosis, refers to understanding something so clearly and distinctly that it informs and influences your life. And the knowledge to which Peter refers to begins with the gospel. You see, the gospel informs people of our, of our sin nature, damnation in hell, and our need of a Savior. As well, it informs us that this Savior is Jesus, God in the flesh, who died as our substitutionary sacrifice and shed his blood to pay the penalty for our sin. 
Furthermore, the gospel informs us that God the Father accepted Jesus' salvific work by gloriously resurrecting him. And finally, the gospel influences those who receive its knowledge by causing us to surrender to Jesus' lordship. But it's not enough for us to limit our knowledge or understanding of Christ to the gospel. Indeed, Peter urges us to increase in our knowledge of Christ. 2 Peter 3, 18, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. See, gaining a more precise and more distinct understanding of God and Jesus Christ requires study and meditation in the Word of God. We must heed the warning of Isaiah 5.13 and Hosea 4.6. That is, we will go into exile and be destroyed for a lack of knowledge. You see, Peter's emphasis upon knowledge is a direct attack against the false teachers who were embracing that antinomian Gnosticism, that ideology that reveled in lawlessness, revered secret knowledge of the cosmos, regarded the physical body as evil, and rejected the deity of Christ. Again, the Greek construction of the phrase, the knowledge of God and Jesus, is significant. It, too, conforms to the Granville Sharp rule. God in Greek is joined by the definite article, whereas Jesus has no definite article. Thus, according to the rule, Jesus is equal to God. Additionally, Peter refers to Jesus as Lord. Now, the name Jesus means Yahweh saves. And the term Lord, kurios, is the Greek equivalent for the Hebrew name of God, Yahweh. Regarding the term Lord, Robert Mount states that to call Jesus Lord is to declare that he is God. Thus, by referring to Jesus as Lord or Yahweh, Peter underscored the truth that Jesus Christ was God in the flesh. As well, by substituting Jesus Christ for God, the text establishes the deity of Christ. Since Jesus is God, he is the sovereign one, and he has the right to reign over everyone. Interestingly, God only identifies himself as Yahweh to those who are in a personal relationship with him. And note the phrase, our Lord Jesus Christ. The possessive use of our Lord evidences that we have a personal relationship with Jesus and can call Jesus' God and Father, our Father and God. John 20, 17. Jesus said to her, I ascend to my Father and your Father, and my God and your God. So this abundant grace and peace comes through growing in knowledge of, of Christ. Second, abundant grace and peace come through prayer. Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Hebrews 4, 16. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We must petition God for his divine strength and inner tranquility to face the hostilities of this world. And third, abundant grace and peace come by putting on and clothing ourselves in humility. 1 Peter 5, 5. Clothe yourselves with humility towards one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Colossians 3, 12. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, 
kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. That put on means to be filled with a quality or condition. Clothed means to enter into a particular state or condition. Put on and clothed are both in the imperative mood, the mood of command. And hence, we must be endowed with humility and enter into a state of humility. Now, such an endowment only comes by continuously comparing ourselves to God, not to others. To be clear, humility is not thinking less of ourselves, but thinking less about ourselves. It is thinking more about God and others than ourselves. Remember, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So we have two provisions so far. We have the provision of faith, and we have the provision of grace and peace. Two provisions so far for a life of godliness. Third, the third divine provision believers have been given is everything pertaining to life and godliness. Verse 3, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. This third divine provision that we've been given is everything pertaining to life and godliness. Since Jesus is God, or the Mighty One, as underscored in verse 2, interpreters must understand his divine power as referring to Christ's divine power. The use of the term power in 1 Peter 2.16 refers to Christ. Excuse me, 2 Peter 2.16 refers to Christ. Power refers to an active, living force that holds things together. And it should not be confused with the term dynamite, meaning to blow up, tear down, or destroy. Now, just how mighty is Christ's divine power? His power is so mighty that he upholds all things or sustains the universe by the word of his power, Hebrews 1.3. And by his divine power, Christ has granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness. That verb granted means to officially bestow something freely upon someone else. Its use in verse 3 signifies the free giving of power which results in life and godliness. That this power is free means that this power is not granted based on our merit. Furthermore, his power is sufficient to supply everything we need. Philippians 4.19 My God will supply all your needs according to the rich, his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. You see, there is nothing that God cannot and does not supply believers in order to live a life of godliness. Now notice here, first of all, that Christ's divine power has bestowed life upon us. Life, zoe, refers to the gift of eternal life. It has been freely gifted to us at the moment of salvation. And understand, my friends, that eternal life is not only a future provision, but a present provision. From a future perspective, eternal life conveys the idea of living forever. But it's more than that. Presently, eternal life is knowing God and Christ. John 17, 3. This is eternal life, that you may know the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. As well, eternal life as a present provision is transformative. It changes the nature, our nature from an old creature to a new creature, 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things passed away, behold, new things have come. Second thing about Christ's divine power is that he has, it has bestowed godliness upon us. 
Godliness, Eusebia, is an outward reverence or piety towards God. It's living an ethical, moral life that is acceptable to God. Peter repeatedly emphasizes godliness through this epistle because of the false teachers who were neglecting ethics and morality. 2 Peter 1, 6 and 7. And in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. 2 Peter 2, 9. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation. 2 Peter 3, 11. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people you ought to be in holy conduct and godliness? See, it is through the gift of eternal life that we are capable of godliness. See, theologically, life is the result of justification, whereas godliness is the result of sanctification. Now, life and godliness are granted to us through the true knowledge of Him. Again, knowledge, epinosis, primarily refers to the gospel, but by extension, the whole of Scripture. And the object of this knowledge or gospel is Him. And that still refers to Jesus Christ. See, just as the provision of grace and peace are multiplied via a clear understanding of, of, of Christ in the gospel and the Scriptures, life and godliness come through that same understanding. Peter further clarifies Him as the one who called us by his own glory and excellence. The term called, kaleo, is a shepherding term referring to the voice of the shepherd summoning the sheep into his presence. In 1 Peter, 1, in 1 Peter the term called was associated with God the Father and related to calling believers out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Here the term is associated with Christ and refers to his calling of sinners to repentance. Matthew 9.13 Go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Christ calls us by his own glory and excellence. Glory, doxa, as used in this context, refers to Christ's divine majesty. Excellence, arete, is a common Greek term for moral virtue. By joining glory and excellence together, Peter's focus is on Christ's moral virtue. Thus, when Christ calls people to himself, he uses his divine power so that they see his moral virtue, i.e. his own glory and excellence. And upon seeing his moral virtue, they are attracted or drawn to him and in turn repent of their sin and place their faith in him. So, the third provision that God's given us for a life of godliness is everything pertaining to eternal life and godliness. The fourth and final divine provision we have been given is precious and magnificent promises. Verse 4. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Again, the fourth divine provision that we have been given is precious and magnificent promises. Now that prepositional phrase, by these, refers back to Christ's glory and excellence. The verb granted means to officially bestow something freely upon another. You see, as with life and godliness, Christ freely bestows the divine provision of his precious and magnificent promises upon us at the moment of salvation. 
And these promises are precious and magnificent. Precious refers to that which is costly or of great value. Magnificent is that which is out of the ordinary. Thus, these promises are of a great value and out of the ordinary. You see, they are precious because they are initiated by Christ's sacrificial death. They are magnificent because they demonstrate God's power and divine nature. Furthermore, Paul says, as many as are the promises of God in him, they are yes, 1 Corinthians 1.20. That means, believer, we can bank on God's promises. He never holds back on what he has promised to do. However, what are these promises? And now the scripture is filled with many divine promises. Peter, though, has a particular group of promises in view. Those involving the promise of his coming, 2 Peter 3, 4. From Peter's point of view, Christ's coming was one of the promises Jesus gave during the Last Supper. By examining the events of John 14 to 16, a number of promises are revealed. We have the promise of a heavenly home, John 14, 2. We have the promise to, that Christ will return for his disciples, John 14, 3, 18, and 28. We have the promise of seeing and knowing the Father, John 14, 7. We have the promise of answered prayers asked in Jesus' name, John 14, 14, John 15, 6, John 16, 23, and 26. We have the promise of, of obedience to God's command, John 14, 15. We have the promise of the Holy Spirit as an encourager, John 14, 16, and 26, John 16, 7 to 11. We have the promise of knowing the relationship between the Father and Son and us, John 14, 20. We have the promise of the Father and Son's love, John 14, 23 and 15, 10. We have the promise of peace, John 14, 27 and 16, 33. We have the promise of fruit bearing, John 15, 5 and 16. We have the promise of friendship with Christ, John 15, 14. We have the promise of hope and persecution, John 15, 18 and 16, 4. And finally, we have the promise that we will overcome the world. John 16, 33. Now that preposition phrase, by them, guarantees that these promises are certain. And because these promises are certain, we know that we have become partakers of the divine nature. Now that word partakers, koinonos, means to receive a share of something. Peter does not mean that we will become gods, nor does he mean that we will be just like God. What he does mean is that we will have a share of the divine nature, that is, Christ's glory and excellence, i.e., his moral virtue. We will share in the moral virtues that belong to Christ. And Peter's going to explore, explore these virtues further in 2 Peter 1, 5-8. Now for this very reason, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. This partaking of Christ's moral virtues began at salvation, with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Currently, the Holy Spirit is working in us to produce holiness in us. Galatians 5.16 I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. 
Believers, we have escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. See, the Greeks viewed corruption as something limited to the material world. But Peter used the Jewish idea of corruption, phthora, which views it as moral perversion. This understanding of corruption is further implied by the use of the term lust, which refers to impulses of evil. Peter's point is that, that at salvation, we escape moral perversion and are given moral virtue. However, the complete escape of corruption and partaking of Christ's moral virtue will not occur until the rapture. 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, now are we the children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. Friends, God has provided four provisions for a life of godliness. First, God has provided us with faith. It behooves you to consider whether or not you have the same faith as the apostles. Do you know Jesus as your God and Savior? And are you submitting to him as your Lord? You need to ask and answer that question. Second, God has provided us with grace and peace. I would urge you to examine whether or not God's grace and peace are growing or abounding or multiplying in your life. And if they are not, is it from a lack of progressing in the knowledge of Christ? Perhaps you're not petitioning God for more grace. Or are you not practicing humility towards God and others? And I challenge you, make sure that you're practicing humility towards God and others. Make sure you're petitioning God for more grace and peace. And by all means, please, progress in your knowledge of Christ. Third, God has provided us with everything pertaining to life and godliness. You and I need to consider how eternal life is a present reality in our day-to-day -day living. See, presently eternal life is in knowing God in Christ. That means we need to be growing in that knowledge. Are you growing in that knowledge? As well, eternal life's transformative. That means that we are being transformed over time. Look at your life, believer. Is there a lack of transformation from the old life to the new life? And if there is, it's indicative of a grave spiritual problem. It may indicate a lack of eternal life. And if you lack eternal life, it's because you're lacking salvation. And you've got to go back to that faith. See, inward change produces outward godliness. Are you living in a manner that is ethically and morally pleasing to God? And finally, God has provided us with precious and magnificent promises. The goal of God's promises is to cause us to partake of the divine nature. Already, my friends, the, the Holy Spirit is indwelling us and working to produce holiness in our lives. And ultimately, when we see Jesus, we will be just like him, holy and blameless. And so, my friends, I leave you with this. Confess and forsake anything that is inhibiting you from developing holiness and going on to Christ-likeness. God has given us 
for provisions to live a life of godliness. Whether we're suffering, whether we're slandered, whether we're scattered or not, we can go on and be godly. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for these four provisions that you've given to us, Father. I thank you for giving them to us in Christ. I thank you for all that you've done to accomplish these things in us, these means of perfecting and establishing and confirming us. But Father, I ask that we might examine ourselves, that we might look within and, and check ourselves as to whether or not these provisions are there. And Father, if there is a lack of these provisions, that we might come before that throne of grace and petition you as to why. And perhaps, Father, there's sin in our life that needs to be confessed and forsaken. I pray to that end the Holy Spirit might reveal that to us and that we might then follow through. Perhaps, Father, it means that there's never been faith to begin with, let alone grace, peace, and life and godliness and so forth. And so, Father, if there's someone listening that doesn't know you as their personal Lord and Savior, I pray that they might come to that place today of acknowledging their sin and their need of a Savior, that they might confess and forsake their sin, repent of it, turn from it and turn to you, trust in you, put their faith in the work of Jesus Christ and dying and shedding his blood, being buried and risen again. And that, Father, that may be evidenced in their submitting to your Son, their Savior, as their Lord. Father, again, I thank you. You don't leave us without the necessary tools we need to be godly. And so, Father, challenge us to go forth and be godly in an ungodless world. We pray these things in your Son's precious and holy name. Amen.